Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickers and I'm the host of the Sendcast and the Managing Director of B Squared. If you are new to the Sendcast, then welcome. Come and have a listen. The aim of the Sendcast is simple. We want to reach lots and lots of people and help you all learn more about special educational needs and disability. We want to make the world more inclusive. This week we're discussing being black and autistic or neurodivergent with my guests Susie Rowland, Keisha Swabby and Lauren Fernandez. Susie is an author of books supporting pupils around autism, ADHD and non-attendance. Lauren is a neurodivergent consultant and trainer and Keisha is a speaker and promotes and supports dyslexia in a number of ways. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B-Squared. We are the assessment people. We help schools to show the small steps of progress pupils with SEND make. We help schools to show progress for a wide range of abilities and ages with all our different frameworks. And if you're a primary school struggling to show progress or struggling to identify where a pupil isn't making progress, we can help. Visit the B-Squared website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with me so I can take you through our assessment software. Let's get on with the podcast. On this week's show, we're discussing being black and autistic or neurodivergent. I have a number of guests with me this week. In the ADD corner, I have Susie Rowland. Susie is the founder of the Happy in School Project, an author of books supporting schools around autism, ADHD and non-attendance. She has written three books, which are Sending the Clowns, I Can't Go to School, and a Poetry Collection. Welcome to the show, Susie. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. In the Autistic and ADHD Corner, I have Lauren Fernandez. Lauren is a neurodivergent consultant and trainer, focusing on autism amongst marginalised communities, and Lauren provides the support and training she lacked when she was diagnosed later in life. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Thank you, Dale. Thanks for having me. You are welcome. And in the Dyslexic, Dyspraxic and ADHD corner, I have Keisha Swabi. Keisha is an international speaker. She is a goodwill ambassador for the Jamaica Dyslexia Association and was voted as one of the top 50 influential neurodivergent women in 2022. Welcome to the show, Keisha. Thank you, Dale. And just to correct, it's Keisha Swabi. (laughs) Swabi. She corrects me twice and I'm still saying it wrong. Sorry. (laughs) Until a few years ago, I wasn't aware that neurodiversity affects different ethnicities and cultures in unique ways. We always hear the typical boys presentation, there's the girls presentation, but that's just a couple of presentations. And I've since I found since I've also found out that I'm not the only one with this lack of awareness. I'm guessing all of you have obviously come across that in your lives. Yeah, definitely. Who's going to start? Yeah, I'll start because my story might be a little bit different from others. I grew up in Jamaica until I was 14 and came to the UK at the age of 14. So things was very different for me, which I didn't understand about anything about dyslexia. I couldn't, I couldn't even spell it, much less know anything or dyspraxia or ADHD or what, it's, what it even st- stood for. Massive lack of awareness, especially in my own community. So it goes a long way and it stretches across all sectors, schools, workplace, education system, university, and especially for a lot of people who have been diagnosed late in life as well. So Susie, you were diagnosed with ADD last year. 
Now, obviously, being 21, that's still quite early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of an epidemic of late diagnosis. And I was doing a talk last night, and one of the um, participants was saying that people are being overdiagnosed, actually, in different communities and raising some alarm about that. But I think, I think it's good because, the, for me, the world is waking up to neurodifference. And I don't think it's a new development. It's always been there. People have always had those those strengths and differences. But because, particularly in the UK, we have a school system that is very much geared towards the neuro norm and sort of fitting into a convention and, and fitting into a rota, sometimes unfairly called the sausage factory, putting people, young, bright, creative, innovative young people into our system. And then we kind of squish them into the shape that out of all, all their natural ability gets reduced down to a tick box. So I think it is that system doesn't work for many neurodivergent youngsters, but it particularly doesn't work for black, those of us with black and brown skin. It actively works against us, actually. And all the data is there to to back that claim up. Uh, overdiagnosis, I've heard this a few times. and. If you have the trait and you pass the test, that's not an overdiagnosis. That is a diagnosis. I think what it is more a case of is people have completely underestimated how many neurodiverse people there are. And the number of people going, oh, you're just, you're just the same as the rest of us. It's like, you're probably just haven't been diagnosed yet. And it'd be really interesting to really find out how many there are of us <laughs> and just to realize actually there's a lot of people who are neurodiverse a lot more than people realize and we all see that world slightly differently and i can go into the whole we need labels right now to help people understand but ultimately i'd love to get rid of labels because we're all very very accepting lauren what's your experience my experience with diagnosis yeah so I was diagnosed at the age of 26. That was 20 years after my youngest brother was diagnosed and immediately after my sister, who is 10 years my junior. And it's, I mean, my brother's presentation was completely different to my sister's and I. He was nonverbal and his challenges were definitely more obvious, even though we weren't aware of what autism was as a family but he brought that kind of familiarity to us and then my sister being diagnosed at the age of 16 after a very traumatic and turbulent life and as I mentioned in our pre-chat being pushed towards more of a mental health diagnosis from a very young age as opposed to looking at her needs rather than her deficit so when my sister came home with her diagnosis at 16 I was like, that is, whatever, whatever that is that's going on over there, I think that's where I need to start looking. Sure enough, I got my diagnosis and for autism spectrum condition. And it was then that the psychologist said to me, I think you've got ADHD. And my response to that was, that's what those naughty white boys have in school. Like, I don't have that. I didn't throw chairs around. I didn't do these. And I had stereotypes of what I thought ADHD was. And uh, funnily enough, my results for my ADHD came back unremarkable um, as ADHD in the combination, combination as one can be. So that's that was my diagnostic journey. 
So are you more ADD than ADHD? You're not the th- you're not you're not that hyperactive, or are you? Oh, that's the thing. It says there's different. <laughs> I am extremely hyperactive. I have all different types of traits, but these are things that were managed out of me, whether be it like socially masking or also culturally. For example, I have had this thing where I continuously tap my leg. I'm doing it now, but my parents would put their hand on my knee and stop me from doing it as I was growing up. And it caused me a lot of frustration, which I internalized, but I wasn't aware of the depth of what was actually happening. That was my release. That was a way for me being hyperactive, but also masking to fit in in those situations. And unfortunately, that stim was being suppressed in me along with many others. It's interesting you said that understanding of what ADHD was was naughty white boys. And I think most people, when we think of ADHD, you are thinking those disruptive boys who are going to walk out the classroom, they're going to disrupt everything, they can't focus, they're bottom set. Before I learned about ADHD, that was kind of my completely <laughs> understanding of it. it like, literally, I knew nothing about it. And I'm really fortunate that on the podcast, I get to chat to lots of different people with lots of different experiences. And I learned so much and learned that actually that is completely not what ADHD is. That is one part of ADHD. But there are so many. In the same way autism is a spectrum, ADHD, as is all neurodivergent conditions, is all a spectrum. And you will look at, you probably, if you actually sat down with those people, there's a couple of things you're going to go, yes, we have this in common. And that we are completely polar opposites. We have nothing in common in those areas. And that thing is, we have that typical stereotypes around autism and ADHD and the boys and the girls. But could any of you kind of tell me what you've seen, which is culturally different? So maybe like you mentioned stimming. Is there anything that you actually go, well, I do this, which is not typical for white people because that's the typical white person stimming. Is there anything like that that, people might misunderstand? Well, I I have a, a slight take on it, and I say this a lot when I speak online, is that traditionally and up until today, people that are in working in this sector will, ha- will have this understanding. The diagnostic tools are, the diagnostic tools, the treatments, the intervention are very Euro and male-centric the understanding that we have and the basis that we have is on the presentation of these conditions in young white boys. There is also the element of white male privilege. So my partner's white and he behaves in a way that strongly resembles ODD. He works in special education units and he has no desire for what he calls a label And he says he has no need for it. And my response to that is that you are privileged. You can walk around like that and I can't. So before talking about the differences, I think it's very important to note that the way that society views us as black people and as black women, there are many microaggressions that come into play when we are viewing the quote unquote behaviours of somebody as opposed to the challenges and their needs that they have. Yeah. I I agree, Lauren. I think that um, for me, neurodiversity is is very much about your uniqueness. And, you know, that phrase, you've met one autistic person 
you've met, met one autistic person and the same with ADHD or dyspraxia. It's a very unique presentation to you, your experience and your life and, and your personality and, and all those other environmental factors. But the thing that really strikes me in terms of a parent of a young black boy who was excluded first off at age six as an undiagnosed neurodivergent young person is the is the kind of we have a hidden disability okay but what we do have is a very visible difference in our skin color and it's that skin color that has created in my experience and those of many parents i speak to a lack of compassion for black boys and girls who are neurodivergent and before they are diagnosed or misdiagnosed or undiagnosed, <laughs> take my case for example, their behaviours are viewed with suspicion and, and fear and all of those negatives, which is why the data of we've got sort of 30 to 40% of, of black and, and brown skinned young people in England and they are excluded at a rate that's sort of four times their their white peers and and that's 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 not doesn't make any sense and so you're you're neurodivergent you're you're at higher risk you're more vulnerable to exclusion from school if you add a racial element into that it increases your chances of being out of school even more and we found so much punitive response and then it was the parent blame, which I know that is referred to by PBA Parenting when we've got this, this report that's come out on parent blame. But we have experienced parent blame for decades, decades and decades. I don't see that kindness and compassion and the, the willingness. I mean, we would flat, point flat denied an assessment, although he displayed at that time textbook autism presentation. So sensory overload, he'd run under tables and put his hands over his ears, line up his, his pencils, and then his friend would think it was funny to, to take up pencils and mess them all around for him, which completely knocked him off. If, you, if you're autistic as a child, that's, your, your world is your desk and it has to be with your little Pokemon and your little thing. And they thought that was funny. And they'd stand back and watch him explode, that he'd be the one that would be told off and I, I, it's such a common story. It's like urban myth. Yeah. And I do hear similar stories with, with little white boys, but they're not excluded with the, the speed and in the, in the great numbers that, that black and brown boys are. And that is evidenced. And, and there's loads of data to support that statement. So you were obviously pushing autism and saying it's really textbook. What were they were saying? Were they just saying he's naughty or? Yeah, yeah. We don't know what happened. He just explodes for no reason. So I say, well, what was happening before? Or well, we're not actually sure. And and because his his language was delayed, especially in primary school, and I'd say to him, well, why didn't you explain that someone was messing with your pencils? Why didn't you tell the teacher? And he'd say, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to say it. So we're looking at those sort of speech and language difficulties. And we're looking at the shame as well of, of you know, always being picked on, which a lot of young people experience. 
we've all experienced that and a lack of compassion as well so being told to stand outside the classroom or go and sit in the corridor and be taught in the corridor so these these are then quite traumatic experiences and one of the things that is important all children all children with with neurodivergent and all children period is to feel safe in school safe and respected and i think that safe isn't just I'm in a classroom, I'm fed, I'm that. It's that mental health safety as well. And that's a big difference. Is you could, Okay, I'm going to very simplify it. A child being naughty is one thing, yeah, and they might be very regulated, they might be doing that on purpose. I'm not going to get into the whole, that, that generally doesn't, I'm not going to get into that. But when you are having, you cannot regulate, your pencils have been changed order and you're exploding, you're deregulating, all that lot, there is what everyone is seeing on the outside, but there's what's going on on the inside. And that, from all your is that is completely disregarded. And that is not being supported. And that is what builds up to that long-term damage. Yeah, it's not the pencils being disorganised led to long-term damage. It is how that child was supported in that situation and after that situation is what does the damage. Absolutely. Or not supported, exactly. Or, or not, not supported. Or not recognised or heard, yeah. Lauren, you mentioned white privilege, and I remember hearing that phrase, and I'm somebody who'll hear it and go, no such thing. I'll go read up and went. Because <laughs> I don't, I think, it's, it's white privilege sounds like I'm on a pedestal, and I am up and I should feel, but it's not that. It's, no. and I've realised it, I generally, I never worry about anything. Any situation I go in, I'm never going Oh, how are they perceiving me? I'm never, ever worrying about that. And I can say that I've been in a couple of situations where I have worried about that and it's been horrible. And I'm now going, yeah, imagine feeling that all the time. Then imagine not feeling it. That's, that's it. It, it, it. So I've, I've read and I understand it. And that's the thing is, is it's, it's a whole complicated area. But that's the thing is if you're going in and you're doing that, if I went in and I said this, I will probably be, as you've said, I will be listened to more because I'm a white male. When you go in saying the same, all your experience, everything you're saying, not just your personal, but lots of other wider experiences saying bad parenting. He's just naughty. And that's it. And it's that very different. And I'm not, I, we can't unpick why yet. But it is. It comes from, and this is the thing. It's. It's. You can't fix this in a week, a year. You can't change. It's. It's. And I'm not rooted in, in an evil way. Rooted in people's, but it's based on all your experiences. Talking about what role models, yeah. What role models are there out there? What's this? What's that? That's the thing you need to see. And a lot of things I've read and gone. Actually, I really get most of this now. That I can be anything I want to be because there's so many white role models. But when you, growing up, I remember reading people saying, okay, if you're black, wh who, who's black on TV? What's their job? That's what you see. And I get that. And I think with neurodivergent being black, where are the role models? Well, there's three of them in front of me. I just, I just <laughs> love that, Dale, that you touched on that. just wanted to come in there. just couldn't hold my piece and come in with that one. Because... I I, I so agree. There's people like myself, Susie, and many others, Marcia, 
we're all there trying to, to, to fly the flag. And because I always say, I have the saying, if I can't see it, I can't be it. However, in the new neurodivergent space, we have people like Steve McQueen, you know, we have Jay Blades, we have these people. And I couldn't tell you how hard Maggie as well, Maggie Adherne Pocock, she's right up there in in, mm. in the space of a, being a black woman and being dyslexic. And I cannot mm. tell you this, the difficulty I've been having in even trying to reach out to Steve McQueen to say, all I want is just interview because we need to be creating this awareness, more of this awareness and seeing these amazing robot models who are doing great things in society, coming out and talking and sharing their story. But I cannot get hold of him because I've emailed several times to his PA and what I've been faced with is he's too busy, he can't do this and whatever. And I have to say shout out to Jay Blades. Susie was also on that on that event that we did with Jay Blades. I reached out to him and he was like, no problem. This is who you need to contact to make it happen. But it, I've been so frustrated in this space because there's not enough black voices coming through. There is and and I still find that white privilege in this space as well. I really do still find it in the neurodivergent space where black people, even though we're coming out, we're fighting, we're trying to to knock on the doors and get a seat at the table, it's still been it's still difficult. So imagine being a black woman coming from Jamaica, being neurodiverse, have children who's new who's also neurodiverse, trying to get those role models to the forefront. And because I see this where people get so high. There's Judy Love as well. She's come out that she's dyslexic. Kelly from Loose Women. But these people are unreachable. Why? Mm. Why is it that you're so unreachable in coming out and being able to give the access to you to talk about this for us to show that there is amazing people like you out there doing things? I just had to get out of my mind. I know, Keisha, I feel you. And what, what I do in my presentations, I actually always share, like Dr. Willard Wigan, who is dyslexic and autistic. You know, he's on television. He's really, really friendly and accessible. And also Jason Vardy, who, who recently got his first professorship of sociology at Cambridge University, a really humble guy. And he spoke to, I think it was Charlene White recently. So, you know, what, what, a, what an amazing story. So I think we just have to keep sharing the visuals and sharing the story. But for me, it's what's happening in the classroom, because a lot of that trauma happened in the classroom when, you know, you're already different and then you're different within different. And I think that's something that I I feel acutely aware of, that, that you know, even in, in schools that have higher proportions of black minority people, it's that understanding that we still have class teachers, only 9% across England. Who, who are black or, black or brown. It, it's a really tiny number. And my daughter is one, and I'm so proud of her. I'm so, so proud of her. My mother was a teacher, so she kind of was out there in the 80s doing flying the flag. But you'd say, well, why are there so few? I mean, even just to have a teacher, not even a, a neurodivergent teacher, but just a teacher that looks like you, who can perhaps empathize with some of the bullying you might be experiencing, because our kids experience bullying both for being black or brown and for being different. And, and I think we, we know we all have a responsibility, neurotypical and neurodivergent, to, to explain to our children what difference is, what's happening in your school. Are you unkind to anybody? Why is that? Why do people always pick on, on uh, Jamal, for example? What's happening with him? Why, why are people picking on him? 
kids are really, really intelligent. And I think we have to honor that intelligence by having these on- honest conversations in our classrooms. Mate, I was going to ask about how does this change as you go around the country, but you just answered that because I grew up in Croydon, very, very diverse, very, I loved it growing up. I now live over in Berkshire, very white middle class, very different. Um, and I was hoping that, yeah, it will be different in Croydon because it's, yeah, it's a more diverse community. But then you just say only 9% of teachers. I'm going, yeah, that's not going to help. Because again, as well as you talking about your role models around you and your teachers are your role models. Yeah. Your teachers are your role models. And if they're like you, great. Yeah. If they're not like you. Yeah. I'm not saying you cannot, (laughs) white people cannot connect. But as you know, there's an underlying of how you're treated in different situations and then having someone who's walked the same path as you or had similar ex- experiences is a much better connection. And when they say you, come on, you can handle this, you will have more trust in them saying this. So, yeah, so sadly it isn't better in some areas because it's still, we haven't got those role models in the schools. We haven't got the teachers fighting for them that still needs to change. Just going back a little bit, Dale, on white boys and their ease, apparent ease. I know it's not easy for any parent, but their apparent ease in getting diagnosis. That's because originally all the research was done on a seven-year-old white boy or that cohort of, of young people. So the diagnostic criteria are skewed to look at yep. presentations of autism and other neurodivergent conditions on based on this particular presentation. So that's why girls and women and minorities or people with black and brown skin, they're not even not even looking for the same things. And no. you know, we go back to you talked about was it chat GBT? Yes. It's about the research. So when I try and do research, I have to look far and wide to find the information that I know is happening, but then I have to evidence it. And then I was told, well, why don't you go and do your own research? Well, I'm not a researcher. That's not my area of expertise. And you know how difficult you have to, can you afford to do the research? That's a whole profession in itself. So we're in this catch-22. So where's the research on black autism, Black ADHD, Black Neurodiversity. You know, Marcia's got her book out, which is fantastic, Keisha. But the, the, the whole, the whole swathe of research that supports what's happening and what we're saying that's not being done. So Susie just mentioned ChatGPT. So ChatGPT is an AI you can go chat to and ask it questions, and it's got access to the old whole of the internet up to about September 2021, and you can ask it really good questions. You can also do lesson plans, loads of other stuff. It's very, very cool. And and before we recorded, I asked last week, why are black people less likely to be diagnosed with dyslexia or autism or ADHD? And it gave five reasons. And the first is lack of access to assessment diagnosis. They may face barriers. There's financial factors, things like that. And this is across America as well as UK and everywhere else. Cultural differences in learning and language. And as Susie just said, the standardized tests and assessment tools diagnosed may not be culturally sensitive or appropriate to black individuals who may have different learning styles and language backgrounds than the majority population. Stereotyping and bias. 
So teachers in healthcare may hold biases or stereotypes about black individuals, overdiagnosis of behavioural, so other things going on are kind of, or perceived, are, are kind of hiding those things, and lack of awareness. So black families communities may have limited awareness or understanding of dyslexia and its symptoms, which may lead to underdiagnosis, which is what you were touching on at the beginning, Keisha, that completely unawareness of what dyslexia was and ADHD. So you can really see that this answer has come from the internet. It's based on all that research. So this isn't just one person's opinion. This is collating all of that together. And it is saying exactly what you are all saying. So it is the truth, I would say. Anyone got anything to add to that? Certainly is. Um, And it's going back to what Susan is saying as well. There is a massive, massive lack of research and I've always said that I would happily do a PhD in this area just to sort of pinpoint because what's coming through a lot is a lot of late diagnosis especially in the black communities only those who's braved it and say right I'm going to go into higher education a lot of them have been picked up myself my own daughter so many other people in my network and there isn't any whole data out there that's showing the proportion of black people who are neurodivergent at all is so difficult to find anything it's not hardly anything you can even reference you know when you're trying to do find a bit of information out there and going back to it again it's so difficult to get someone to say okay I'm going to pay for this piece of research funded because it's not as you know doing research is not it's not easy and it's not free or cheap and it, it's no one, it, it doesn't want to be touched. There's no one out there willing to put the money, the money where their mouth is and, and, and do it and say, this is needed, this, is need, this needs to be done. And it's, it's really affecting our community in a massive way. And I am really getting tired of hearing people being diagnosed in their 50s. Myself was 41 at university. My own daughter slipped through the education system of primary school secondary school, college as well. And it's only, what if she hadn't gone through university? What if I hadn't gone to university and I was just still in the workplace? It wouldn't have happened. It just, I w- would be struggling the rest of my life without that diagnosis. It, it really is, something needs to be done anyway. There is one person doing some research, Joanna Oliver. She's doing a PhD. Her doctoral study is Black Young Men with Autism experiences of the criminal justice system so she's she's in the middle of that and and power to her I know she, I know that's not been an easy road so um, I look forward to seeing what she'll come out with there but it is it is a sort of monumental study and then when you get this catch-22 if so many of our young people neurodivergent young people with huge potential and talent are being excluded from school how are they going to get the qualifications to go off and do their do the research that relate to our community? and start to bring about change, structural change, how is it going to happen? So we're kind of in this double bind. And I think being out of school or, or not able to, to access the education, however you do it, I have, I have no issue with other arrangements outside of school. But then if we, we haven't just got the educational issues, we've got the subsequent mental health issues, which is another thing that we kind of, <laughs> it's difficult to talk about, but there is such a thing as, as black trauma. There's no doubt about it. I felt hugely, hugely upset. It's a very 
slightly triggering thing to talk about the girl that was sort of beaten up outside a school in, in Ashford a couple of weeks ago. And it took me about two days to recover but because knowing that the, the people there, the head teachers, whoever they were, senior teachers, were clearly too afraid to step in and help help the girl out. And I, I don't want to get into too much detail, but the, these things happen a lot. And then plus the fact that I've, I've seen that with my own son and I've seen the pain with lots of children that I work with one-to-one who are not only coming to terms with their autism or their ADHD or whatever it is, but they're also coming to terms with how, how we are sort of frankly demonized in many parts of, of our country, basically, or our, where we live, and the feeling of not belonging. And that's a really important thing for, for all of us, because I think that I always talk to, to young people and say, do you get along with the other kids in your class who are autistic or find your tribe? And it's, it revolutionizes their self sense of self and their confidence if they're meeting other children who, who they can relate to without having to worry about not being understood or not making eye contact and they can just relax and be themselves. So there are two, two struggles going on. There's a struggle to accept and understand who you are as a neurodivergent person. And then there's the struggle to where do I fit in in this, in this society that doesn't seem to want me or accept me or like me. And it, it, these are very broad generalizations, but I think there's a lot of having to overcome as, as Lauren was talking about microaggressions and having to cope every day. Like, so when I know that my friend, her son is getting on a train for the first time in East London, he's t- taking an independent train journey. We have a little conversation about it. What's going to happen and how is, it, is, how is he going to manage and is everything going to be okay? And th- this is the, the privilege and these are the challenges that black parents and black neurodivergent parents, whether we've, we're neurodivergent or our kids are, these are the things we have to think about. You know, as you mentioned, safety. I, I mean, physical as well as psychological safety. Yeah. And it's interesting, all there you're talking about there, and again, you can, I can stereotype that you're talking about males and men, but if we look at, like in schools, it's like a four-to-one ratio, I think, ADHD of for every one girl diagnosed, there are four boys. But when you reach adulthood, it's a one-to-one ratio. So again, even in the white, the everything is about prior is sexual is it is easier to pick up the boys with ADHD. It's much easier. So as well as having all those racial stuff, the female side coming in as well is you, you're not doing the right things. You're not showing the right traits. So you're not going to get picked up. So that on top of everything else. And again, the lack of awareness of ADHD in women is it's still huge in autism in women. And you get, and I've met so many people, we do the autism show every year. And the number of people who get diagnosed in life, but then flip on it and go, that's why I've done all of these things. But I've always felt really weird inside, no one relates to. And it's just really interesting when you talk to these people, it's kind of really obvious talking to them, how it's impacted their lives in a positive way. but they generally don't share how it's impacted them in a negative way because that's very personal and there's a lot of hurt in there. And I'm sure without saying it, you've all experienced that, haven't you? You've all probably looked back at what could have been different, how different my life could have been if someone 
in school just said, you might have ADHD. Or the reason you're struggling is not because of this. It's because of this. Your life could have been completely different. The trauma wouldn't be there. The hurt wouldn't be there. And it can completely transform your life. So, quick question. We're talking about the long term and changes. And I think you mentioned the research going on. Was it Lauren Oliver? Joanna Oliver. Joanna Oliver. And that's the thing is you mentioned that the percentage of teachers who are black, that goes up into senior leadership, that percentage, it goes up into local authority and advisory roles. So you haven't got those advisors. You haven't got that research going. They haven't fought through the system and got up there to champion it. And you've only got a couple of people at the top championing these issues, which need to be addressed. So question for all of you, what would you change long-term and what, should change now what sort of things should schools or teachers be doing now should we go with you Keisha wow <laughs> I've had a very recent experience with schools with my, my, my one of my twin has been diagnosed last year with dyspraxia however I had to kick off a few doors for that to actually happen and because I am the way I am and I know my own child and I know what, what's happening I could see what was happening because the hereditary condition I know the chances are I have it they will have it and, and so be it they have got it and it really has to start at a very very young age one parents have to really keep an eye on their children and look at their development and look at areas what is the catch-22 situation again as what Susie was talking about is that because we are, we have so much lack of awareness, we're not aware. Sometimes we don't even know what to look out for. So it has to be a holistic approach with parents and the schooling system starting from the, in the school from a very, very young age, looking at these things. Because there's some schools out there that will say, oh, we will not get them diagnosed or tested until they're a certain age. Some schools are saying the age of eight. By that time, that child is already going through things that they really can't even explain themselves. They're going, they're having their own accumulation of traumas that they, they're experiencing. They don't know what it is. They haven't got a clue. And the schooling system where there's teachers there and it's really bad when they don't understand what to look for. They don't know how to deal with the situation. A lot of children just getting brushed off as having behavioral problems and getting excluded from school and when I had the experience with the schooling system was what saved me was that the SENCO that I was dealing with, he had children who were always also neurodivergent. So he really understood where I was coming from and he really pulled out the stops to give me the help and support. But not everyone has that experience. And it, we, we really have to change the whole schooling system. And I heard the lady that's in charge of the head teacher from Moon Hall, which is a school that's dedicated to dyslexic children and she was saying that if the whole of the schooling system is been really open and inclusive like teaching the way that neurodiverse because neurodiverse people we have so much understanding we see things differently so she was saying that if things were being done like that in school we wouldn't be having the problems that we're going through everything should be like that as a whole we shouldn't have to be fighting to say 
this is yeah. a send this is a send department. We shouldn't even have that in school because everything should be there as it is. And a massive thing as well, I'm always fighting to change a narrative from calling it difficulty. Please, we need to stop calling it learning difficulty. It's not a learning difficulty. It's a learning difference. And having these negative connotations attached to these conditions that our children are going through is what's causing a lot of the problems as well. Because if you look in society, we all have something going on. All of us. You find somebody who don't have something or another going on, may not know what it is or what they're going through, but there is something. So everything should be inclusive. The workplace, certain things, the schooling system, businesses, websites, signages, the list goes on. It should just be like it is what it is and shouldn't be there. Is that, oh, is that learning difference? Is that learning difficulty? No, we need to stop that. So that's my two peas on it. Lauren? I believe that there needs to be more education towards people, as in teachers, teaching staff, frontline staff, such as police, medical staff, people that interact with people daily. In my work, I hear families telling me that the police have been called to school for their nine-year-old. The police have been called to school for their Children under 10, it was only yesterday that my partner was telling me a year one pupil has been moved to his secondary school pupils referral unit and he was expecting this, as he said, monster and he just saw this cute little girl with two bunches and couldn't see where the issue was. So to to reiterate, I think, what Susie touched on earlier with regards to the fear and how we are viewed as black people in society People just need to be better educated and it's very, very simple for me in that the basic things that I was taught as a child, treat others how you wish to be treated, respect people. You don't, and and just simple things like that. People shouldn't be allowed to take their bias to work with them and where we find that people are using or acting on those bias, they need to be removed from that setting. There should not be people in power in any setting, particularly when you're dealing with young children, there shouldn't be anybody in power that acts on those biases. And we see that in the media a lot. We see it with many different, we see it with females, we see it with all different sub-communities, but particularly, and also to touch again on what what we were saying earlier about role models, we see a lot of negative black role models. We see a lot of negative media about young black men, young black boys. And these things, I believe, keep people within the black community not wanting to speak out. So it's a vicious cycle. People don't want to be that positive role model because they don't feel comfortable because perhaps they have that freedom in school to be their true neurodivergent self. But when they're traveling home, they're intercepted by their local community. And those Though that cohort of people may not be as willing and open to accept it because they're not seeing that and they see a different type of life and have a different value. So there's so many intersections. But I feel like, in my experience, there needs to be more pe- positive role models and more positive representations of Black neurodivergent people. We we've named a few, but there are so many, and there is I understand a lot that needs to be done 
in the confidence and the safety of those people to ensure that more people feel comfortable to speak out and be the representation that people in our communities need. The thing with bias is I think, okay, I'll probably get this wrong, but I think a lot of it is properly unconscious that our experiences, if we don't have any life experiences, we get it from the newspaper, we get it from the TV, we get it from social media. So if all my experiences are something else from social media, I will have a very twisted view of that person. Or it's like whenever you see Mexico in a film, it's always very yellowy. And you see it on Reddit going, this is Mexico, it's not yellow. It's, it's not a sand tint over everything. It's the same colour as the rest of the world. But in films, it's always shown as this slightly yellowy tinge. And you kind of think, and you got there and went, oh, it's, it's not got this yellow tinge everywhere. And it's just how the films do things. And that is a really stupid example because I don't want to touch on various other things. But it is various my experiences I had growing up in Croydon. I learned various things. I experienced various things. But if you grow up in areas like Cornwall where the diversity is less, your experience, your understanding of things is going to be coming from your soaps. It's going to be coming from the bad guys in films. It's going to be... It's those things are going to shape what you think about people. And that's why we have to get those role models up there. As many different role models as possible to help go, no, you need to have better understanding of every type of person. Susie, have you got anything to add on what you change now? Oh, yes. And what you'd... Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I know you've already... I'm going to limit your time here. <laughs> I mean, yes, you will get your bias from the media. and But I think this is where the school system is, is really, there is room for improvement on my report because that's the whole point of Black History Month, looking at the cultures and civilizations pre-slavery days, the history of the kingdoms of Ghana and the Nubian kings and queens. There's loads of stuff that's, there's, there's a huge amount of information that just isn't taught. And, I, and I've only learnt it as an adult and, and because my mother was a teacher. And so you, first of all, don't feel that you have any pride in your history because it, it, the history that we're taught in the sort of Eurocentric history is really sort of bad and very negative. But if we were going to look at three things, I would say for educators, I would say notice. And by that, I mean, notice what's happening in the classroom. Be aware. Notice your own bias before you step in and say, Jamal, is it you again? You're always a, you're always in the middle of every... Before you just go into that stereotype, take a minute. Have I seen this correctly? Am I always reprimanding that particular child? And we know that ADHD kids get much more reprimands than their neuro-norm peers anyway, than neurotypical peers because of their externalizing behavior. We, we, we talk a lot, we move around a lot, we like to be physical and have a laugh and we're spontaneous. That can be difficult to manage in the classroom, but it's not always a negative. Try and find the positives in that young person. Notice them being good, is what I say. Notice them doing something right. No, notice. And then the second thing I'd say was attention, to so pay attention to the behaviors, is there an undiagnosed additional learning need? And I agree with Keisha. Let's not, it's not special. It's an additional need. Do they need something else to access their reading, to access 
the lesson to access going on? Do they need some help with that? So, so pay attention and pay attention to their parents as well, rather than if the parent is saying, as I'm saying, well, absolutely fine at home. I don't understand what's happening at school. Pay attention. Maybe that parent has something valid to offer rather than, again, bring your bias to that parent and say, well, has, has he had breakfast today? I, I was literally asked that. Pay attention. Listen to what's happening. And then finally, take action. Do something. It, it, it is really hard to be proactive and be active, but there's no other choice because otherwise the status quo stays the same. Everything stays the same. And we think we're having the same conversations in 10 more years. So I love this quote from Desmond Tutu. He says, if you are neutral in a situation of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. So if you're, if you're like a little mouse being squashed by an elephant and the elephant says, no, I'm, I'm neutral, well, that doesn't help the mouse, does it? We did, we did a whole podcast on, with Finton on bullies, victims and bystanders. And if you are just watching and not stepping in, you are on the side of the bully. There are certain things you can sit on the fence for. But when it's something like that, you cannot sit on the fence. You're either protecting or you're, you're saying. And I, there was a story about a head teacher who basically went out, split up a fight, clocked every child who was there and suspended all of them. That's amazing. Yeah. Which is right. Because you you allowed it to happen. Exactly, I love to hear that. And and then this whole thing about taking action, allyship isn't action. It's quite passive. You know, you have to do something. So if you are a school leader and you know that your school, you know, look at the data. It's all there. I know you. I know you're really hot on data, Dale. All this, all the data is there. You'll know at a glance how many of your pupils have additional learning needs. How many of them are from black and, and brown origin or BAME, which I don't particularly like, but you can actually look at what your school, how many pupils with those needs are being excluded. And you can take responsibility and action to bring those figures down. One thing when I read the statistics on exclusions, mm. I was very happy to see it's only in 15% of schools, which is a much nicer number mm. that 85% are doing it pretty well. But interesting, you talked about that history and that's the thing, I sit there and I went, that's a really valid point. Everything you learn in school is we start at Stone Age and we go all the way up to the, at some point, 60s, 70s. And we, it's all white history. It's the history of the UK and it's all white. And then we learn about slavery. And then we learn about freeing of slaves. And we may learn about a couple of Martin Luther King or things like that. We may learn about a couple of people. But generally, that's it. It is very, very white-centric. And it, it kind of, if you look at the heritage of the UK, the history, you're kind of going, I can see why, that yes, blah, blah, blah. But how does that feel for a black child sitting in that class? Because generally, but also females as well, because I think I've got two daughters, and it's another thing which has helped me sit there and look at things differently, that it is a very much a man's world, and then you had the suffragettes fighting for women's rights. And even in the, my, in the 80s, my mum wasn't allowed to talk to the bank about their mortgage. My dad had to and things like that. So you've got this fight, which is only 100 years old for women's rights. International Women's and then Day. black rights yeah. are, are even further behind. So you can really understand why that in the whole history of the UK and everything, it's been men, 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 men. 
And only in the last hundred years, it's been, hello, there are women here. We have rights. We have minds. We can do jobs as well, you know. And then black is just following on from that. But we have to see us all as equal. I think if people understand that black history is is world history, there were there was the the Georgian townhouses and all of the a lot of the wealth was enabled, and I've done my research in my family, and I have I have I know what my ancestry is on my English side, and a lot of my ancestors owned a sugar plantation in Jamaica. Yeah. And a lot of that wealth created from that enabled them to build a grand house somewhere. So this yeah. is, it's all connect. It's all connected. There is no disconnect. And I think if we understand how world history and the Americas and the Africa and Europe, then it makes sense. And we're giving our children a broad understanding of history. But I just want to turn in on that there, Susie, because even when they're trying to teach black history in the schools, it's very, very the negative side of the one of, of what they want to show. They're not showing as the, what you're talking about the wealth of what black. Because when you look, go back into history and you see how much it wasn't. We weren't all like held down by slave masters. We were some of the only champions who have mansions and all of those estates and all of those things. But they always want to go back to the Africa slave of us being beaten and. The schools need to be educated as well and start to learn the deeper history of black people, not just saying, oh, pity you. Oh, gosh. Oh, no. Oh, you got you was a slave. Oh, oh, really? Oh, we need to get away from that. Too much of it is going on. And our children is growing up. They've been bombarded with all of this negative things. Show them all the the positives of black people. Just stop it. Need to stop it. Yes. And that's the thing is, white history is generally quite positive. And yeah, the black history you're taught in schools is being held down and fighting for basic rights. And that is what I learned in school. I actually refused to, um, at GCSE, I was a straight A star student, uh, predicted straight A stars. And so there were a certain amount of GCSEs that I had to take in each category, humanities being one of those. And I just remember going to year 10 history and then saying, Miss, I'm not listening to this. I had maybe a a 23-year-old white woman (laughs) trying to tell me that basically all my history was slavery. And even though I, I wasn't aware of what more was going on, I was certainly aware that I was not going to sit and endure that. So I'm then given the labels, I'm disruptive, I'm being challenging, I'm, I'm challenging the teacher. And instead of, oh, sorry, and they called my mum into school because this is a core subject and the school needs these grades. And Lauren is one of those students that we expect those grades from. And my mum stood by what I said. And a way for them to penalise me was to not allow me to take any humanities, which I don't know how they got away with it, but I wasn't allowed to take anything. And um, but in a strong sense of justice, I was like, I don't care, you know, fine. I'm, I'm not going to sit and listen and then embark on qualification that I don't agree with. There's way more to my history that I deserve to learn and understand. Yes. And that's the thing is, if you want to go to Greta Thunberg, is that neurodiversity of, I believe in this, so I'm going to say it. I'm not going to worry, should I say it? It's just going to come out of my mouth because it needs to be said. 
<laughs> and I think so many neurodiverse people have gone, yeah, if I hadn't said those things, my life would have been a lot easier. <laughs> but I'm saying them, and that's that. Deal with it, because I'm not putting up with Absolutely. that. Absolutely. I call it neurodiverse <laughs> truth. That truth is so <laughs> I go there. Out. I don't care. I just go there. <laughs> I got told in year seven, my family do sailing. My geography teacher said something. And I was like, you're wrong. No, I'm not. Sit down. I'm the teacher. I went, you're wrong. She went, no, I'm not. Fine. And I went back and I took in a book, which is a good three, four inches thick. Took it in. opened it all. I went, can you tell me the difference? Yeah, you're wrong. I now get that was probably quite rude. But she was wrong and I wanted to let her know she was wrong. So I told her because she was wrong because she's teaching children wrong information. What's wrong with that? Mm. So is that Perhaps rude? maybe the way I did it. <laughs> it's not mm. rude. It's telling it's the truth. Rude. But, <laughs> it's not rude. But I was, but I, this is an going gang, but I was a white male. So I was just, oh, shut up. And that's that. But I didn't get that label. And that's the thing is I did that quite a lot. And I never got NSE labels. I never got... And that's the thing is, it's, if that was someone else doing that, if that was a girl doing that, if that was a black boy or a black girl, how would that have been? And I can't tell you, but I know enough that it probably wouldn't have been treated the same. That's all, that's the bit I do know. And there might be people listening going, no, it would have been, it's like, it's hard to recognize how you see the world is biased until you go do some reading. And most people don't like that. Or have and conversations. My just have conversations. You haven't got to read. You can just talk to people and there's there's no there's nothing. I think these conversations, I love these conversations because that's how we all that's how we all move forward. Because and I have I have a hugely mixed heritage in my family and I love that I love that and we and we square it out <laughs> and that's the only way you can move forward because you know who's got time to read let's face it I mean I love reading but I think we have an urgent situation in our schools for, for, but that's the thing you, yeah. if you're dismissing something but it's all around you go just look into it and don't just dismiss it because of your own experiences yeah Go, just go, and go, why? Why is everyone so angry about this? Why is this an issue? Because I don't think it is an issue, and there are things I don't know the answer to, and I, I'm interested in finding out. But there's there's two quotes, the only two quotes I really love and know, and the first is a Mark Twain quote. It's what you, it's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that ain't so. Yes, when you really believe something is this, and it's not, that is what gets you into trouble. And the other one is truth is like poetry. And most people don't like poetry. <laughs> Sorry, Susie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a whole, whole poetry. <laughs> I love poetry. But I like, they're my two quotes. I sit there and go, yeah, I'm quite happy with that. I'm quite happy those two quotes sums up most of the things in the world to me, that we have these beliefs because of how we were taught. And so many beliefs I have about the world and everything is from my school journey and i'm quite happy because i'm white and all that was quite happy history we had some wars and stuff and blah 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 but generally it's quite happy but what would my opinion be if i was black and i'm learning about actually it's all all the white people are doing everything and 
we were slaves and we fought and we're still fighting for our rights. And people will say, oh, no, we're all the same. We're all one. And, yeah, it's easy to say it as a white person. But I, I, I just know it from my wife. So I run B Squared and my wife is here. And I just have it with different people. They walk in, they will talk to me. And they just, the way they refer to her, because they're not, she's not as important to me. I'm the person they're trying to impress. They just talk to her in a slightly derogatory way. And it upsets her. And I'm going, but why would you? And they just assume she's someone else. I'm the important one because I'm the man. And it's just really interesting. When mum started B Squared, she started it. But she was, oh, can I talk to the managing director? And she's like, you are. Oh, are you, his, are you her secretary? She's like, no, it's my company. And it's just these slight assumptions people make can be completely innocent, in air quotes, but it's that, just that experiences lead to these biases, lead to these judgments, which are completely not intentional, but something in you who believes this to be true, and it's not. Mm. I know someone and that's who, what we need to change. who's done was, um, she, she asked for a diagnosis and assessment and she was refused three times and her white husband went in and he was told straight away that they would send off paperwork and get an assessment for her son. And that's literally about well, three years ago. So, wow. so, so that's the thing. We're, we're, looking at, we're looking at a triple whammy, female, <laughs> neurodivergent and black. Woohoo! <laughs> Holy Trinity. <laughs> Yeah. Right. We've been going for an hour now, so I am going to wrap it up. But I've really, I've really enjoyed the conversation, and I'm hope for anyone listening, you're either agreeing with us already, or you might be going no. But if you are saying no, ask yourself where that no's come from. Is it you've done lots of research, or is it just no because? And if it's just no because, just go do a little bit of research and maybe think about how you got to that no. Yeah, that's all in reality everyone here is asking is just think, how did you get to? Why is it you're always telling him off, but you're not telling him off yet? They're probably doing the same thing. Are you have, that, have you got that unconscious bias that you're not aware of, but is having a very big impact on that child? I think if we start there, we can grow from there. But that's the first thing is in those things, do you have a bias? And I find it quite interesting. I have this thing where I have my conversations, but another bit of me monitoring it. And sometimes I'm biased and I'm going, you can't do that. And I'm going, where did that come from? And I'll analyze it and go, right, I've got to stop that. And I do. So as much as I say I'm not biased, there are little biases which go on in my head in various different situations. And I've got to change that. And we all need to change those biases. So Thank you, Susie, Keisha, and Lauren for coming on the show today. You've all sent me a couple of links so people can get in contact with you. And Susie shared her book she's written and things like that. So I'll be putting all of those in the show notes so people can get hold of you. You all are people who do talks and training and podcasts and webinars and things like that. So people can access you and have access to your amazing knowledge and experience. So please have a look in the show notes and get in contact with my guests. So thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, please click on that subscribe button. You can follow us on social media, on Twitter. We are at The Sendcast and on Facebook and Instagram, The Sendcast. 
And if you are a school struggling to show progress, if your assessment process is overcomplicated, takes too long, or you just want to see what's available, have a look at the B-Squared website or book a free online meeting with me so I can take you through our products. We have a range of assessment products to help all schools show small steps of progress for pupils with CND. And if you're a school in England, still confused by the engagement model, not sure about the pre-key stage standards or anything else around assessment, get in contact. You can also find out about our online training and conferences, read our blog or watch our webinars. It's all on the B-Squared website. And you'll find a link to the website and to book a meeting with me in the show notes. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. And it's going to be goodbye from all my guests. I'm going to let you all say goodbye in your own way. Thanks, Dale. Goodbye. (laughs) Thanks for having us. Thanks, Dale. Thanks for having me. Take care. It's been great fun. Thank you. Bye.